Hello and welcome to another episode of the Pursuit of Infinity podcast with Joe and Josh. This is Josh. Today we have a discussion about psychedelics through history, which just scratched the surface of how these substances coincide with the human story. So I do see a part two, more than likely even more episodes on this in the future. But first, please check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash pursuit of infinity, where you can become a patron and get early access to episodes, unreleased conversations that will only be posted on Patreon, and monthly AMAs or Ask Me Anythings with Joe and I. We're also on Instagram at Pursuit of Infinity Pod, where we post updates, general musings, and other things. So please follow us there if you feel compelled to do so. Please also consider giving us a five-star rating on your podcast platform of choice, as it really helps us to make our mark and recruit bigger and better guests. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy this conversation. So, Josh, uh, what role do you think that psychedelics have in the history of mankind? Like, uh, how far do you think this really goes back? Well, I think, first of all, the, the farther you go back, the more sort of speculative it is. And the farthest back that we could possibly go would be, like, the formation of the modern human from whatever hominid we were before this. Um, so that would go into the stoned ape hypothesis. Yeah, so the, you, you're saying that, according to this hypothesis, that psilocybin mushrooms were actually a fundamental part of what shaped the current human being, what we are today. Yeah, so they say that I'm not sure if I'm going to get my numbers right here, but it could be a million, it could be 20 million, it could be 20,000. Um, but a certain really, really huge number of years ago, the human brain size basically doubled in what they call like overnight. And what they mean by overnight is just in a really, really short span of time. Yeah, if you ask uh, different people, they'll give you different answers. They say it could be... Two million years, or yeah, there's like two million years to 200,000 years. So anywhere in between there, depending on who you ask, that's when the doubling of the brain size happened. And again, as you can see, like the more time you go back, the more time in between there are of like the possibilities. So it sort of gets speculative yeah. at that point. But so yeah, you were saying um, that psilocybin mushrooms help to sh form or shape the brain that we currently have, right? Yes. So the hypothesis is that when we were still sort of like like monkey-like humans, we were in the trees, and as the African plains started to dry, we migrated to like the flatlands. And during this time we were domesticating and using cattle. And what would happen was as you're following 
these cattle and as you're because we were nomadic we were hunter gatherers at this time so constantly moving and as you're following these cattle and you're you know you're grazing them and everything um inevitably they're going to take a lots a lots of shits indeed and when they do this happens to be one of the most fruitful and nutritious substrates for psilocybe cubensis mushrooms which are psychedelic mushrooms that contain psilocybin and the theory goes or the hypothesis goes they incorporated these mushrooms into their diet so it seems that initially they would have incorporated them into their diet at small doses which would have um helped to what terence mckenna who is the um the brain behind this hypothesis would say was that it increased their visual acuity, which essentially just means it increased like their visual edge detection. So this would benefit them in in hunting and you know these types of things. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it would aid the survival of the species, really. Yeah, and I guess you could say that the tribes or the groups that took these mushrooms at small doses into their diet would be more successful, and then they would they would progress farther than hominids who weren't including this in their diet, giving them an evolutionary advantage. Okay. So then if you increase the dose a little more, you get um, an increased eroticism. Okay, so this that means then this would allow the species to reproduce more often? Exactly. Yeah, so, I mean, it's possible that they were group sort of i mean for lack of a better word like orgies in like, these kind of like bonobos yes like yeah. bonobos yeah exactly and in this way like they're just producing more and more and more and more and again this is another evolutionary advantage interestingly how these these cubensis mushrooms are influencing the human mind and the human capability to survive better like that is a question itself like why should a mushroom impart the abilities of a human to survive better with them than without them it's just it's it's very peculiar but if you increase the dose even more then into your diet you start to see creativity cave paintings um, the introduction of art and things like that which um, leads to a symptom of psychedelics, which is uh, referred to as glossolalia. Um, so that would be essentially like a just a random assortment of, of mouth noises come out, and they don't mean anything necessarily. It's just like a, a series of noises that can be sort of connected to emotions. So... What McKenna says is that this was like the introduction of language because language essentially is just a bunch of mouth noises that we attach to emotions or thoughts to express to our tribe. And it makes sense that if there's, if you don't have the knowledge that you're capable of creating complex mouth noises that attach to emotions or attach to thoughts 
And there's a substance that can bring that out of you and can help you to sort of catalyze that, that it would aid in the evolution of your species because, I mean, you're able to communicate with your tribesmen, you're able to hunt easier. There's so many things that language introduces. It introduces culture. Um, so I think that's one of the more amazing parts of this theory if it would be considered true. And I mean... You know, they say, if you look it up, they, they call it the stoned ape theory. But as you actually said before, it's actually a hypothesis because there's, there is no way to actually prove this. It, it cannot be proven. But there is now, fortunately, that there's science going into psilocybin and the effects on the brain. And it, it does start to add up that this could have been a, a real possibility. Um, Can you just kind of... Uh define what makes something a theory and what makes it a hypothesis well a theory is is testable it's tested and proven with facts whereas uh, a hypothesis is is more speculation i mean it and that's where this is clearly a hypothesis because there's no way that you could really test this but they're doing you know a lot of studies on the brain when psilocybin is introduced and when psilocybin is introduced into the brain, um, it substitutes serotonin and activates neurogenesis, which causes new neurons to form new pathways of knowledge. So there is some evidence behind it that claims that over a period of millions, maybe hundreds of thousands of years, a continuous consumption of these mushrooms will you know, lead to these new pathways yeah, I think when you first look at this idea, you might think like, oh, so a few monkeys took some mushrooms a few times and then like all of a sudden their brain jumped up like 20% or whatever. But I think really what you, like a good way to think about it is Paul Stamets had said that this did not occur like quickly necessarily in our term, in our idea of what quick means. It happened over millions of years and millions of doses and it, and these doses wouldn't just be like once a weekend or something like to have fun with your friends like these are this is part of their diet like they're eating these all day every day and they're understanding their doses they're using them the, like in in a way that's beneficial to their survival because at that time life is all about survival there's no luxury you're on the move all the time you're hunting you're gathering you're surviving and you have to think you know food was scarce in a sense i mean it took a lot of work and mushrooms are i mean a relatively easy way to you know fill up your diet and i mean they say that there there's a clear abundance of mushrooms and almost all primates consume mushrooms too so so yeah you know and what's interesting is that when you or when these so-called hominids um, left the trees and came down to the plains, I mean, you're all of a sudden dealing with predators that if you go up against, like, hand-to-hand -hand physically, you're done. Like, you got big cats and, you know, these animals that are predators, like, real predators. And us as human monkeys, like, yeah, the monkeys were pretty strong um, and they were capable, but we didn't stand a chance against a lot of the predators that we came into contact with at this time. So you'd think that anything that gives you an edge 
survival wise, you're going to take into your diet, you're going to take into your, into your being, and it's going to work for you, hopefully. And if it does work, you're going to continue to use these things. So that brings me to the, like, the next step up in dose, which is beyond art, beyond even language. And what McKenna would say is that the dose slammed you to the cave floor and introduced religion. And this would have been the basis for all of religious ideas because it introduced the simple idea that God is a thing. Yeah, because you have to think, I mean, where did that idea come from and how long has it been around? Such a great question. Such a great question. I mean, and I mean, that would lead us into, I would say, the next chronological, historical time in the use of psychedelics, and that would be uh, the Eleusinian Mysteries. So <clears throat> we're referred to by Houston Smith, who I'm not sure if you've ever heard of Houston Smith. He's like one of the greatest religious scholars of the 21st century. Like this dude, he gets it. Um, he referred to the mysteries, but like more specifically, the sacrament that they used as the best kept secret in history. So essentially the idea is that there was a religious sacrament used in the city of Eleusis that was basically an, um, a beer spiked with psychedelics. Um, this idea was initially introduced by uh, R. Gordon Wasson, Albert Hoffman, and Carl Ruck in a book that they called The Road to Eleusis. It was published in, I believe, 1978. Um, so... Um, there's also a dude named Brian Murarescu who wrote a book called The Immortality Key, which I believe came out in like 2019, very recent. Um, and he referred to it as a once-in-a-lifetime psychedelic encounter as the origin of Western civilization. So it's a pretty tall order. It, you know, it's, a, it's a pretty big thing to say um, about you know these these mysteries or this this ritual that they performed. And also what's interesting about Houston Smith's comment that it's the best kept secret in history. So initiates of the mysteries, because so I'm going to refer to them as the mysteries. I'm not going to say Eleusis or Eleusinian like every time. So if I, if I say the mysteries, I'm just talking about just the, as a whole, the ritualistic use of the sacrament that's in question. So, um, again, this was a ritualistic ceremony and like an initiation of sorts. So when you had an initiate, the rule was the initiate was not allowed to speak of the specifics of the mysteries. Like, that's why we don't have any record of what it was that they actually consumed as their sacrament. Uh, that's, and again, that's why Houston Smith called it the best kept secret in history because nothing can be found about this. Like it is, it's really, it really is like a grand secret. Um, so it's said that the mysteries were the root of Greek civilization. 
And as you can see, Greek civilization and Greek history has a tremendous influence on our civilization. So when you think about this, you could think about the mysteries as like the foundation of Western culture as a whole, because we were built off of Greek culture and Greek history. Yeah, and they, this, I guess this started around the time of the Mycenaean period in ancient Greece, and uh, that's like right after the Bronze Age, and that's the time when, in Greece, organized urban areas started, you know, popping up, and they started creating a lot of art. So this is like, this was the beginning of what we know as, you know, ancient Greece. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And it was before um, Greece became sort of more imperial, which we will get to. Um, but it started in the city of Eleusis, which was about 30,000 people, and it's located like 13 miles northwest of Athens. Um, so very, very close to Athens. So you know, later you will definitely see the impact that Athens as a city um, had on the mysteries. But what's really crazy is that for about 2,000 years, it was what was called by Murarescu as the epicenter of the Mediterranean spiritual universe, um, often referred to as the authentic religion of ancient Greece. And think about what it would take to keep something going for 2,000 years and to keep it secret for 2,000 years. Like this must have had such an impact on the people who were initiates. Yeah, and it's interesting because you were only allowed to participate once. You could only do this one time, and then, and then yeah, and you couldn't speak about it. And it, another thing that's interesting is it was open to everybody, like men, women, free people, and even slaves were, were allowed to participate in the initiation. A lot of famous people from Greece, you know, participated. Um, Plato, Cicero, uh, he was a great Roman statesman, and he was quoted saying that the mysteries were the most exceptional and divine thing Athens ever produced. And that's coming from a culture that, you know, created democracy, free speech, things like this. Cicero placed these mysteries above all. Yeah, I mean, other initiates, um, you said Plato, right? Well, that was Cicero. Yeah, he also he said that this is these mysteries is what actually held the whole species together. That's saying something. Yeah, like, and that it's coming from you know a very intelligent guy, and yeah, Plato also he he participated. Yeah, some other initiates were um, Aristotle, Pindar, uh, Caesar, uh, Caesar, Augustus Caesar. It's wild. It goes from, you know, it goes from philosophers to slaves that were participating in this. Marcus Aurelius, uh, Plotinus, like, I mean, so many of the most important philosophical and scientific minds of the human race were all initiates of these mysteries. Um, Aristotle said, um, you go there not to learn something, but to experience something. Yeah. And, uh, and Plato spoke about witnessing the blessed sight and vision. Yeah. So, like these things, like they're it, this is they're, they're pointing to something, you know, something that we can that we can sort of unearth. Um, and a very important part of this is um, the myth of Demeter and Persephone. 
Right. That that's kind of the uh, origin story of the festival, right? Yeah. So what that is, it's it's essentially it's the the Greek myth of um of death and rebirth that was attached to the mysteries. Um, so the ritual would transform your relationship to death, um, like the classic definition of a shamanic journey, for instance. Um, and what they would say is it's like death preparation. So, so the quote is, if you die before you die, you won't die when you die. Great quote. Great quote. And, and it points directly to a mystical experience, directly. Yeah, and, you know, it's interesting. We only have a few, you know, accounts, like people speaking of it. There's no real evidence to show what, you know, what it was inside this brew that was drunk. Um, so in the 14th century, when the mysteries were in jeopardy of destruction, um, it was said by one of their high priests that life in the absence of Eleusis would be unlivable. So what is what can that mean? Like life without these rituals could be un, would be unlivable. Like how important was this to their culture and their way of life? Well, yeah, and that goes back to uh, Cicero saying that it was quite literally what held the entire human species together. Yeah, and I think he also said something like uh, it was the most divine thing Athens ever produced. Right? Is that what you said? Yep, yep. More so than democracy, free speech. It's it's, it's absolutely insane. So eventually. Athens becomes an imperial power, and uh, it takes over their religion, essentially, um, like snuffing it out. Um, it didn't really snuff it out, though, I would say. Um, it sort of changed the mysteries a little bit, like it made it less um, authentic. Like they almost diluted and watered it down until it, you know, dissipated and, and you know, was gone. Um but there's no real evidence, or so we thought, um, as to what it was contained within the brew, or with, or if it was a brew, or what the hell it was. Um, but the technologies of what's called archaeobotany and archaeochemistry, which is essentially just like the archaeological study of plants and the archaeological study of these plants or of um, artifacts using chemistry. So what they use is called, it's called gas chromatography and mass spectrometry. So not going to pretend to know what those things mean, but what they do is they take samples of ancient containers, cups, chalices, and grails, and they can sort of test the remains of what was inside them as long as they haven't been cleaned. Because if you go to many, many museums around the world, they have these, these chalices that were supposedly used in similar rituals, but they've been purged of all of you know, the remains of any chemicals that are in them. They're, they're cleaned and they're prepared for the museum. So, But I just wanted to, to throw that out there because we're going to kind of get to that in a bit with uh, Brian Murarescu's work in The Immortality Key. But um, there are some more interesting artifacts that... I'd like to sort of talk about um, that connect Demeter and Persephone myth to the mysteries and sort of further the idea that it was 
um, like psychedelic in nature in terms of like the experience itself. Um, so there was a piece of art that I found. It was like a stone relief sculpture of a dude's head. And below it, there's like a huge set of eyes that are on like a flat panel. And under the eyes, there's like some writing. And I think it was um, like ancient Greek. So researchers say that <clears throat> the head was the head of an, was the head of the artist um, who was also an initiate of the mysteries and happened to be blind. So the purpose of the piece, they say, as indicated by the writing on the bottom, was a tribute to Demeter and Persephone, which we were saying was the myth of death and rebirth that was attached to the mysteries for restoring his vision. Quotes, restoring his vision. So what that means, I mean, who knows? Does it mean that his vision, his actual eyesight was restored? Or was it a, an internal vision? Like, wh how, did, how would you... Well... Well, not to uh, jump forward too much because we might get to this, but it reminds me of, you know, another person through history that you know of, Jesus, who would give people something to drink, the blood of Christ, whatever this potion was, that would give sight to the blind. So it's, a, it's a, another comparison or a parallel that you see in another religious story where you could say a lot of this stuff originates from these mysteries. Yeah, I think that is the real important part of the mysteries is that you can you can directly translate this into Christianity. And I mean, I think I you know again, that's the most important part of this. Um not sure if you ever heard of uh the Greek god Dionysus. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people say that Jesus is actually our version of Dionysus. Right. And that would make sense, you know? Well, a lot of it is, there's so many parallels to other religions. I mean, well, Jesus, you know, is also famous for saying that you must be born again before you can see God's kingdom. I know you're familiar with, uh, with Gebekli Tepe, right? Yeah. So um, it's an archaeological site that was discovered in the 90s, uh, was completely buried by sand, and then what they say is, intentionally and when i mean they i mean the people who excavated it you can they can sort of tell that this structure was buried by sand intentionally by the people who built it why is still yet to be determined but uh its original excavator who's named klaus klaus schmidt uh talked about a representation of god being essential to the structure so again you know you find these um like these same sorts of value systems in these these uh, ar these archaeological structures, um, and there's ancient pots that were found in Gobekli Tepe that um, that we used some archaeochemistry technology on, um, and they found that there were remains of beer in these chalices. So, what's interesting about that is right there is evidence for like in a structure that was supposedly dedicated to God and to finding God, you find a chalice with beer in it. So what do you like what do you think that means? Well, I mean if you ask Albert Hoffman, he'd say that that it was a beer, but it was brewed with uh, ergot, 
which is what Albert Hoffman was studying when he discovered LSD. I'm so glad you brought that up because um, later, ergot is actually found in some of these chalices, um, not the ones that are in Gebekli Tepe, um, but without getting too much into the myth in its iconography, uh, you see um, like pieces of art, images with Demeter and Persephone all over the world, all over the place, um, which takes us to Iberia, which in Iberia, uh, there was a sanctuary that was found. All kinds of ritualistic items, uh, a whole bunch of stuff that had these images of, De of uh, Demeter and Persephone on them. And in the very center of the sanctuary, they found a chalice that they dated back to like the second century BC. And again, <clears throat> using technologies of archaeochemistry and archaeobotany, they found the remains of beer, again, but along with the beer, they found the remains of that very important fungus that you just brought up, which was ergot. And like you just said, ergot is essentially what is what LSD is. And well, it's it is also said that ergot was uh, that it could have been very plentiful in the plains of Eleusis. Because the plains of Eleusis, they grew barley and rye, this type of thing. And that's, you know, ergot's basically a fungus that grows on, on barley. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because they even say that it may have been that the ergot was there by accident. Because like you said, it grows in, in those conditions with those ingredients. So it's even possible that they stumbled upon this by accident. Right. I mean, they could have just been using barley to, you know, brew this beer and just as, you know, an effect of this ergot growing on it, you're left with this, this potion, this psychedelic potion. Yeah. Yeah. And I think potion is the right word for it because I'm pretty sure that beer and wine were different back then than what we make today, what we define beer as now. Yeah. Because you hear about, you know, and the same thing with with Christ and the blood of Christ being wine. Like you hear about in these ancient stories, they talk about wine and beer, but it none of this it adds up to what we consider wine and beer. You know, when they talk about it, they're talking about these experiences that seem very psychedelic in nature. But, you know, what we consider beer and wine today, not close to that. No, and there was actually, um, there's a dogfish head beer, um, dogfish head brewery, um, they made a beer called Midas Touch. Have you ever had this or heard of it? I think I have, yeah. It's one of my favorite. I love Midas Touch. It's fantastic. Um, but this was actually made in inspiration of or inspired by um, an ancient beer that was involved with these sorts of uh, like with these sorts of rituals, which was called a graveyard beer. Not too familiar with it, um, but you know these this has been around for a while, you know. Um, and all of this stuff that we've been going on about, it's this is all Greek. And if you look at the Christian Old Testament, what languages is it written in? It's written in ancient Greek. Greek is known as the sacred language of Christianity. So, like you said, it, this seems to bring a potential new meaning to eating the flesh of the gods or the blood of Jesus, which is that wine. And it brings into question as to whether or not uh, you know, Jesus is our 
version of Dionysus, which would be he's like the basically the god of the psychedelic experience. Right. It gives context to the uh, phrase giving sight to the blind, too, for sure. Oh, absolutely. Which goes back to that piece of art, which is like, you know, restoring your vision, you know. So like in those terms, like what does what would vision mean, do you think? Like, do you think it is literally like there? Because, I mean, in other in other cultures, like in in South America, like ayahuasca is used as not just like a visionary experience, but it's also used to like to heal and to cure physical ailments. So is it possible that they are talking about like physical vision, like being able to actually see, or is, do you think the vision is like more metaphorical? Well, I think it's metaphorical and literal. I mean, when you take a psychedelic, you quite literally see things. I mean, it's funny though. Um, like you, we have so many, uh, unfortunately not too many, but we have descriptions of this and it's always really intense and profound, like a rebirth and seeing vision and all this. And like, if you look to the Victorian era, they put their culture onto Eleusis, meaning they heard about Eleusis and they thought that it was some laser light show or some, something crazy like that when that's just kind of their culture shining through and like being projected onto Eleusis. So if they determined that to be what Eleusis was, I feel like it might be safe to say that it's a quite literal vision that these people are getting. Because, I mean, they explained it as, you know, some kind of light show. And interestingly, um, it's funny that you bring that up because some modern-day researchers consider the mysteries to be a play. Like, they, they say that it was a, like an actual play that was happening, you know? But... I mean, for me, unless they give you the potion, which has ergot in it before the play, there's no way the play can lead people to say such profound things like Cicero saying it was the most divine thing Athens has ever produced. Yeah, a play, you know, isn't necessarily uh, something that profound. But it's funny. I mean, after these mysteries, that's when plays started popping up. These weren't a thing that existed before Eleusis. Like it create it quite literally created theater and all this type of art we think of that came out of Greece. Yeah, and I mean it most likely created religion, or at least organized religion. Like we said that the stoned ape hypothesis probably gave humans the idea that religion could be a thing, but it seems that the mysteries of Eleusis solidified a ceremonial way to ingest a sacrament and create an organized religion around around that sacrament and the experience that it provides. Yeah, and it, it was a powerful initiation, which is like something that we lack today in our culture, you know? And uh, it's funny, I mean, our re current religions, we still have these initiations, but they, they don't have the profundity that, that Eleusis had. I mean, in Christianity, we still, you know, initiation, you know, drinking the blood of Christ. You know, you could ask anybody who's done it. It doesn't change anything about you. You just have a sip of wine and that's it. But, you know, when you hear about Eleusis and they're doing the same thing, but having profound experiences that are specifically attached to the drinking of the wine or whatever the brew is that you're that they're drinking. 
Whereas today, we don't see too much significance in those type of things. It's kind of just ritualistic, uh, you know, just going through the motions when people go to church and do those things. There's no real physical effect that you hear about when people, you know, they report what their experience is at Eleusis. Yeah, it seems that when Athens initially took over the religion and um, influenced the West more so than ever, um, it continued the dilution process of what, you know, these religions are. Because when you go into a church, you know, there's a dude in front who's a priest. He is supposed to be your doorway to God. You're not supposed to be allowed to experience God yourself. And what these mysteries are is a testament to people experiencing God for themselves, and as opposed to looking to somebody else to be the prophet of God. And most of the time in religions, they specifically tell you, like, you aren't, like, you can't experience this. Like, you're not supposed to. It's a sin to think that you have. Look to our priest. He will tell you the way to go because he's the prophet. And then, but when you look into, like, the religious text, the true prophets like Jesus and stuff, these guys usually, you know, give sight to the blind or, you know, show people the way. But, you know, it's often the case that it's through consuming something. So the blood of Christ, I mean, it's it's a, a pattern that pops up in a lot of religions. Like today we interpret it as, you know, this person being magic and and allowing people to see God through them. Well, now we, we focus, in, like in today's world and the, the myths of all these religions, we focus on the person. Like we focus on Muhammad or Jesus and we should worship them. When, you know, if you look to Eleusis, there was no person. It was about yourself, going there yourself and having an experience yourself. Like, a, you know, a death and a rebirth. And the common theme that you do see is the brew or the consumption of something, but that's downplayed today. And there's arguably a sinister motive behind that. I mean, why why would you downplay something that is that crucial clearly when you look into the history of Eleusis? Yeah, it's like they removed the magic from the sacrament and replaced it with, like, the person in front, you know, telling you what to do and what to think. And, I mean, it's not supposed to... This isn't meant to be, like, a you know, a thrashing of organized religion, because I'm sure, you know, people who are involved in organized religion, it benefits their life in great ways, and, and, you know, this and that. I don't happen to subscribe to any organized religions, but I'm not going to discount what they do for people. Um, but that being said, it seems like, um, like the sacrament was really where the rubber meets the road, and in order to enact a certain amount of structure of control, you put somebody at the forefront instead of experiencing it yourself. You know, you put someone up there to listen to a teacher or a guide or whatever instead of, uh, you know, taking the sacrament and allowing divisions to happen and, um, and being initiated into um, understanding, you know, what the possibilities of the universe are. Well, I have like a quote here that uh, explains the intention of the mystery. And when you hear this, 
it, it, it points directly to psychedelics if you've ever had a psychedelic experience. So it says, the mysteries were intended to, quote, to elevate man above the human sphere into the divine and to assure his redemption by making him a god and so conferring immortality upon him. So when you hear that, I mean, there's no experience, at least that I've encountered in life, other than a psychedelic that can produce that type of divinity. Yeah, and divinity that you can experience yourself instead of... Because I didn't... Man, before psychedelics, I was a staunch atheist. And... And I as well. And nothing that anybody could tell me was going to change that. The only thing that would change that is me undergoing an experience that showed me truly that atheism is, I want to say, wrong. I'm not going to say that, like, theism is the way that it is and, like, there is a sky daddy, you know, kind of God, but atheism is definitely not not right. Well, you think about in our culture, I mean, we're we're growing up in a culture that is... it. Our culture is scientific, materialistic, and in order for something to be true, we demand proof. And, you know, this type of stuff, there's no proof for it. And we don't value today a divine experience. Our culture values organization, progress, production. Uh, we we want to get the most out of the system we have now and build it further and further. A divine experience like Eleusis, like these, this kind of tears down everything that we believe and gives power back to the individual. You won't need a religion or a priest to have a connection to God. So it really throws a monkey wrench into the culture that we find ourselves in today. Yeah, it seems like that's why these things were snuffed out. But, man, how do you go from 2,000 years of a ritual that they say life is unlivable without what changes you know from then to what we have now it's hard to say i mean there some people believe there might have been a sinister motive you know for control but then there's also people that believe that there was a, a quite literal shift in culture from you know this beer brewed with ergot to a different method of brewing a beer that is, you know, alcohol-based rather than psychedelic-based, which could have been a major shift in the culture. I think they started using honey or something. They, they switched up the recipe for, for beer, basically. And a lot of people think that the death of, of like, Eleusis and all this was because the potion changed. That, you know, we went from a psychedelic culture to an alcohol culture. Yeah, because, I mean, imagine going into a psychedelic experience and like say, say you've had a bunch of psychedelic experiences and you go into your next one and instead of being handed like a cup of ayahuasca or instead of being handed like a mushroom or something, you're handed a cup of alcohol, you know, like that pales in comparison. I mean, it's not even in the same realm of effects. Right. And it's something that you can do all the time. Like it, it becomes, you know, a, a huge thing of the culture. Whereas Eleusis 
as I mentioned earlier, this was something that you could do once in your life and then vowed to silence about it or else you were killed. I mean, you were sentenced to death if you talked about it. Yeah, that's true. They would kill you, which is crazy. And for 2,000 years, like imagine how many generations of humans had to maintain and promote these ideas in order to, for it to last 2,000 years. That's a long, long time. Well, the thing is, you, I mean, if you've had a psychedelic, I mean, it doesn't need much promotion or any of that because the experience speaks for itself. And, and just the, the whispers of that experience drove people from all over to come to Eleusis. I mean, it was a major part of the culture and something that everybody had to do in their life. I mean, anybody who was anybody found themselves at Eleusis. And the most unimportant people. I mean, slaves. I mean, it was so, it was such a deep, profound thing. It was something that, as Cicero said, kept all humanity together. They understood this in a way that they allowed enslaved people to participate as well. That's how important this was. So maybe it could be even be fair to say that the beginning of like the erosion of humanity started with the dilution of and removal of the mysteries. I think that's safe to say. I mean, we don't have anything like this today. I mean, fortunately, people can do this, you know, they can do psychedelics on your own and all this, but culturally, we don't have a, uh, something that is treated with such respect and something that people need to do in their life to truly understand humanity. I mean, I think the biggest thing is, I think drugs shape a culture and it shows i mean like i i said people some people believe that we went from a psychedelic culture to an alcoholic culture there and now we still have alcohol and caffeine like these drugs that we're using shape our culture like today we need to move progress growth you know move forward you know keep doing keep going keep producing that's you know that's an effective caffeine i mean if you look to what the people are consuming of any time, it's, it's very telling of their culture. Yeah, it's true. And in McKenna's book, Food of the Gods, he, you know, a lot of people think that that book is just about the Stone Day hypothesis, but essentially what that book is about is the, the influence of drugs on the human species at different periods of time and in different places. And he goes over sugar and tea like the sugar trade is crazy if you look into that like and coffee beans i mean well it's one of the biggest trades on the planet i mean this stuff isn't isn't as uh it's it's significant i mean people don't think about it because it's so common but i mean everybody is running around caffeinated i mean we don't even notice the difference anymore it's just you just take it and it's such a deep part of our culture i mean imagine what it would be like if psychedelics were treated as you know as something as prominent as alcohol or caffeine i mean the thing is you can't do psychedelics every day and that's i think there's some beauty to the aspect of elusis that you can only do it once and i'm assuming that they had it right because i mean you don't want to show up to elusis and get a weak batch or something you know what i mean so they must have had it right in order to uh ensure that you only needed one time so yeah that that's like uh the one time heavy dose. So do you think that microdosing has its part to play in culture? And do you think that it can aid in 
the evolution of humanity in maybe a different type of way, but in conjunction with like periodic high doses? I think, yeah, I think there's a place for microdosing in it. It's, uh, it's, it's, it could be important and beneficial. I mean, there's some, you know, there's research on brain chemistry that it like kind of resets your brain, you know, for people who are depressed, this and that. Um, so microdosing, I, I mean, I do advocate it, but it, I still, I don't think that it is quite, you know, as important as these high doses. I mean, I will say there, I microdosed for about a week. Um, and I did feel positive effects for maybe like a month, like months after. I don't know if that was, you know, a product of the microdosing, but I think, you know, it could be good for some people. But I think with Eleusis, having a one-time profound experience is more beneficial than, you know, maybe just microdosing and never having that. Because otherwise, like you said, 2,000 years, this was successful and it was just, you know, it, everybody raved about it and everybody had to had to participate. I mean, you won't hear that about a microdose. I mean, you know, microdosing is kind of, it's so subtle that you're not going to have a, any divine experience. And I think a, div, a divine experience is what people need to actually change the culture. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, microdosing can be a very good tool. And I think for people who are in any kind of creative endeavor or looking to, you know, get over certain traumas, you know, therapeutically maybe, I think it could be very useful. But yeah, my interest definitely lies more within the the deep, deep high dose experiences. I think they're, they're just too outrageous to ignore. Yeah, and I think, you know, microdosing, it's even more comparable to caffeine. Like, you see people, Silicon Valley, like, tech people are huge on microdosing. I mean, it see, a microdose, it's kind of, it just still adds to our culture now. It doesn't really change it. It allows people to work and focus, whereas these high doses, it's a life-changing experience. Whereas a microdose, it's more about productivity or maybe mood elevation, which is good, but it's still just adding to what we're already doing it's not going to provide some monumental shift yeah so the important part you say is changing culture in my opinion well i'm even maybe not important but the effects of a high dose that would change a culture like i was mentioning i mean i do think what a culture is in taking like drugs food all of that that really does shape the culture i mean we eat bad food we drink alcohol, we do all this stuff, and then psychedelics are Schedule One drug. They're forbidden. So it's very telling of our culture. And, you know, we are pretty atheistic in the West. And then people who are religious are kind of looked at as stupid or dumb or, like, from a scientific person. They say, how could you believe this or that? But you could take that same person and give them a dose of DMT or psilocybin or something like that and they'll understand and change their whole belief system. And that could just be off of one experience. Yeah, because I think it changes what your definition of God is. Because like I was saying, like before when we were talking earlier, um, off recording, <clears throat> it seems that psychedelics change our definition of what God can be. Like you can be told that God is this and God is, this, is that and you know, a priest can come up to me and, and really explain to me everything in the Bible and all of this and that, and I'm still not going to believe it because my definition of God 
is skewed because I'm being told about God by something that is not God. It's just the same as me. It's just another monkey telling another monkey what God is. When you take a mushroom and you take some LSD or DMT or you know whatever, whatever your choice of psychedelic is, you really experience what God is firsthand. And when that happens, it changes what you define God is God as. Yeah, hundred percent. And that's why a lot of times, if you know, I'm talking about this type of subject with an atheist. That's the first question you start with is, well, what is your definition of God? What is God? And usually it turns out that a lot of them haven't thought too deeply about it. And they usually say, oh, like kind of have the cliche image of a, a man or something like that. Or, you know, a person or, you know, a, a religious idea. Whereas I think people have an idea of God that, is something that was told to them rather than something they figured out on their own. So I don't, I don't see how somebody, I, well, I don't, I wouldn't expect somebody to believe in God without experiencing it, especially people from our culture who demand proof. I mean, there's no way to prove it. You can only experience it. And I think that was where Eleusis came in. That's why it was so important because it allowed people to have a direct contact with the divine, you know, not sitting there watching a priest speak and tell you how you should act and what you should do. This is a direct experience that with psychedelics, they, there's some type of moral undertone to it. They, you know, there's something good about it or something that, you know, teaches you how to be and how to act and how to be a human. And it's funny because, again, going back to Cicero, he said that Eleusis literally held humanity together. Yeah, and it seems that Eleusis happened before, like, structured societal pressures dictated, like, what these experiences should be and what religion is and what God is. And I think that's the key to its effectiveness was that there was no idea of a structured religion during this time. The structured religion part happened after Eleusis was already buried. And it's arguably that it's argue. You can argue that religion is just some kind of translation of Eleusis. I mean, like you see all the similarities across different religions, you know, death, rebirth, this type of stuff, a potion involved. So, People were going into Eleusis without all this baggage already attached to God or divinity. Um, they were going in there a little more clear-headed and unexpecting. I think that's a that's a great point. I think it's a great point. Clear-headed and unexpected because you're not putting your own expectations on what the experience should be. And since nobody's allowed to share with you what it is, it's really new, and you're going into it with a completely clean slate. And I think you're right. That's a super important aspect of it. Because when you impose your own ideas onto these types of things, that's when um, the squirreliness comes in. And then especially if you decide to form some type of, let's say, religion around it or hierarchy, it kind of, any hierarchy is corrupted in a sense. I mean, there's always a, 
a power structure involved there. With Eleusis, I think the beauty of it was there was none of that involved, and it was open to everyone. And once you did it once, you had your experience, and that was it. You didn't have to show up every weekend and pray to somebody or this or that. You had the experience, and you kept it with you. And I think there's no other explanation, in my opinion, than psychedelics that can produce that type of experience. And it and it's arguably the reason why God exists in, to human beings. I mean, going back to the stoned ape theory, I mean, where did God come from? How was it created? I mean, I've never experienced it until I tried psychedelics. Yeah, same. I'm not sure if there's any better way to end it, man. Yep, that sounds good for me. Yeah. Yep. This has been a good a good discussion. I really enjoyed it. Eleusis. Eleusis. Yep, do some more research on it if you want. It's it's fascinating. Yeah, it really is. And highly recommend uh Brian Murrow Rescue's book, The Immortality Key. I mean, this dude, he went so so deep and so far. It, it is this book is a magnificent display of scholarly work. I mean, it is it's amazing. Yeah, we just scraped the surface here a little bit and wanted to talk about it. I mean, it, it's something that uh, I think everybody should try to learn about and then make your own evaluation of it. Uh, it's my belief that psychedelics were the, the focal point of this festival. <laughs>